Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. That's page 1144 in the church Bible. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there will be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gais, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I remember when it all unfolded. I was about 12 years old and of relatively tender faith at the time. My family were deeply involved in a local church and quite a lively church with a deep and close sense of community. And this church over about 10 years had grown from about 12 people to 120. And it was really seeing good work of God. Lots of adults coming to faith and being baptized and families coming with them. And we were filling and even outgrowing the building that we were in. But then it all unraveled in what felt like a very short time. And what happened was that my family, along with about 40 other people, including many young children, were asked to not continue attending that church. And we were left spiritually homeless, confused and hurt, and with loads to work through. And in a relatively small community, it was such a bad witness Obviously, I wasn't that involved as a child. I was just kind of following my parents. I didn't really know what was going on. But I distinctly remember being totally confused and perplexed and overwhelmed and saddened as to why this could happen in the church. Why this would happen in the church. I didn't know the details. but I just couldn't get how Christians couldn't just work it out and get on and work through whatever the issues were. I wish I could say it was the only and the last time I heard a story like it. The last time that I came across disunity among Christians within the church. Because it's not, it's all too familiar an experience of of ours, isn't it? For all of us who've been in church for any amount of time, we've got our own personal stories. And we've certainly heard of of stories of others. Very sadly, division has been an ever-present issue and thorn in the side of the body of Christ, the church. On a large scale... On a smaller scale, and on a very personal scale. Now, um, thanks guys, that's perfect. In, in this letter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Corinth in the middle of the first century, so about 53, 54 AD, something like that, because he's become aware that things in this church have got really messy uh, since he left a few years ago after he had started the church. And so through this letter, Paul is 
um, responding to a variety of issues and a variety of questions of things that are going on at, at Corinth. And so actually, there's five major sections to the letter. And we're heading into this first major section this week. I haven't done uh, an introduction last week. Five major things of problems that need addressing uh, in the church. Uh, and this, through to the end of chapter four, is the first one. And it's all about divisions in the church, especially over leaders. Now, we all, in various ways, will relate to experiences of division. As I've said, have our own personal stories or or those that we've heard about churches splitting and whatever else. We should also be aware and very wary of the celebrity culture that is rampant within our churches and within our culture more broadly. And our tendency as Christians to focus on strong personalities and charismatic leaders. So with that in mind, we want us to see what God's word, how God's word speaks into this very important issue for us and helps us to experience what Paul says is perfectly united, perfect unity in the church. Should I pray for us and then, and then we'll dig, dig into to these verses together. Lord, I know I carry my own baggage in this area that, that still shapes my life each day. And I know I'm speaking to brothers and sisters who, who in different and similar ways, carry much hurt and pain and regret and sadness and baggage around division and disunity with fellow Christians. Lord, we ask for your grace, the grace of your word to come and minister to our souls. Lord, we also pray for conviction that we may be shaped and taught by your word. Lord, uh, I praise you that, that so far the Gate Church has broadly been united. And Lord, I pray to you today that we would stay united. And it would be your work in us, Lord. Amen. So here we go. The, um, the first one is this. Uh, the first thing to see, the problem that arose. And in a word, it is disunity in the church. So some from Chloe's household have, uh, have told Paul of the quarrels among them. Chloe was likely a widow who was a successful and wealthy businesswoman, and she was so concerned about the situation in the church at Corinth that she sent some of her people, some of her employees, to to Paul in Ephesus to tell him about the divisions that are going on. And so you can imagine Paul, as these people come to him and tell him this, you can imagine how he feels and, and what his response is. It's just a couple of years since he's left this church that he planted, that he, he loves deeply, people he knows and he cares about. He spent 18 months there. And now he hears that they're all falling out. Now, what, what, what it says here is um, this idea of, of uh, quarrels among you in, in, in verse 11. But listen, the word quarrel in English, it doesn't quite do it justice. It's quite like a, it's an English way to argue, isn't it? A quarrel. Um, but it makes it sound more tame than it really is. There is strife and contention, and it's getting nasty. They're, they're tearing apart. They're ripping into each other like ripping a piece of fabric into pieces. And when Paul hears this, he's absolutely gutted. And what's worse for him is they're dividing over which leaders they prefer. But Paul explains what he's heard. Some say, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. Others, I follow Cephas. That's the name of Peter, a leader in the church. Still others, I follow Christ. Literally, people are saying, I want to belong to, I want to become like my preferred leader. And so they're all very driven by human personality and, and they're splitting into these cliques around these key leaders. It's just a couple of years since Paul's left. And in that time, Apollos has come and probably also 
Peter has visited, and now he's visiting speakers who have, who have spent time in, in Corinth preaching and teaching. Now, that's all, all very well and good. It's actually very healthy for a local church to have a variety of spiritual leaders and influences over their spiritual life. But it's led to factions, with people emphasizing their favorite leaders and who they most relate to and who they most like and who they're willing to follow. Now, the mad thing is, there is no suggestion here that any of the leaders have done anything wrong or have created this or have sought to build people around their personality or whatever else. In fact, all of these leaders would probably be shocked and disturbed by, by these divisions. And yet, that hasn't stopped people in the church making too much of them in their own hearts and in their own minds and creating these factions. We don't have loads of details uh, really, of, of, of what was happening. But an educated guess would be this, that some were very influenced by Paul, who was the founder of the church. And so clearly he carries some weight with that. And so you could call these the, the, the spiritual faction who follow the kind of, you know, the key leader. Others love Apollos. Apollos was probably quite an impressive teacher. He came from the best uni of the day. So he was like one of the brightest guys about. He was smart and he was eloquent. He was probably a little more polished and naturally impressive in how he came across than Paul. He was a more impressive speaker. He had a slightly more intellectual approach. And so Apollos had this really strong teaching ministry, especially amongst younger believers. And so these people kind of gathered around, gathered around him. You could call this group the sophisticated. And then you've got the Peter crowd. People who probably follow Peter because they're drawn to how serious he takes his, his Jewish law and his customs as an expression of his faith. So this is the serious crowds. And then finally, you've got the super spiritual ones. You see all of this making much of spiritual leaders around. And they kind of think, well, that's all child's play. And I'm going to rise above it. I'm going to take the high ground. I follow Christ, you know. I don't need any human leaders. Just me and Jesus. This is the smug. No real differences in theology. Same gospel. But in personality, in style, different. And they're cutting each other up over it. What's fundamentally happened? There's one thing that's happened in the church. They've taken their eyes off Jesus as central. And they've allowed their focus to shift to these different and popular leaders. Listen, if we lose Christ as the centering reality that brings the church together, then everything just spins out of control. We have one shared confession as of Jesus as Lord, and our ultimate allegiance is to him and not to people or any institution or anything else. And Paul read it, um, George read it so helpfully uh, at the start of our service this morning. In Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, and you are called to one hope when you are called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see the repeated word there? It is a problem when the church is not acting or living as one. And that happens when we don't center ourselves on Christ. That's the, that's the issue in the church. Here is Paul's appeal. In verse 10, it is to perfect unity. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions amongst you, but that you are that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. 
Paul wants them to be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. In fact, he appeals to them about this. This is not so much a command, but a warm encouragement to act. He's urging and he's imploring them, please guys, be perfectly united. And as he does this, he doesn't lean towards his spiritual authority. He doesn't play the the apostle card. Listen, I'm an apostle and I'm coming in all guns blazing here. You guys better sort this out. No, you see he addresses them as brothers and sisters in both verse 10 and 11. This is soft power and not hard power. He's appealing to them as peers, brothers and sisters in the faith, in, in the family of faith in Christ. In fact, this letter, this letter where Paul has to challenge so much in the church, so many things that are wrong, so many things that need to be straightened out, they are a mess, as we saw last week. There's so many serious problems. He calls them brothers and sisters 39 times in the letter. That's more than twice than he does in any of his other letters. 39 times. This is a helpful paradigm for us to operate in whenever we feel the need, perhaps rightly, to challenge or to correct or to exhort another Christian to do so as a brother or sister in Christ. Not asserting ourselves or coming in heavy-handed with authority, but to do so gently and in love. Brother, sister, please, can I just... Can I just speak into this for you? Can I encourage you in this? You see, this, this call to be perfectly united, it's, it's so much more than an absence of division or disunity and, and strife, although it is that, but it's perfect unity in mind and thought. You know, if, if, if divisions are like, are like tearing a fabric into, into, into pieces and ripping it apart. The appeal for perfect unity is for it to be mended, for it to be knit together and, and, and restored. Apart from it's not like if, if you rip something together and then you mended it, you'd have to, you'd have to stitch or sew it together to, to mend the tear. But this, this restoration is a complete and perfect restoration, as if the thing had never been ripped apart at all. There's no tear whatsoever. And there's another reason that Paul uses this family language of brother and sister. He's appealing to this reality. Look, You're one family in Christ. You belong to one another. Jesus has restored and united us as one. So there's no time or space for splitting and pulling apart into factions over things far less important. So this is unity, yes. But it's not uniformity. The body of Christ is anything but uniform. That they are to agree with one another in what they say. They're to be perfectly united in their mind and their thought. It does not mean they have to share all of the same political convictions. All of the same opinions on things. All of the same tastes in music or or in clothes. or, Or they all have to speak the same language even. Or they have to enjoy the same kind of culture or films. Or whatever interests or preferences or tastes we may have. No, it's it's not. It's that those things, whatever they are, they no longer define us. They're no longer the source of our our fundamental identity. And so we ought not become, they don't become reasons for splitting with others or separating or going into groups or cliques or creating division within the body of Christ. They're still real, but they're not fundamental. Even unintentionally and with no malice. And maybe that's the thing that we could get to grips with better at the Gate Church. Because I think we think, well, I'm I'm not purposefully excluding others. I'm not trying to cut people out. And yet we can do. We do, in fact. People can feel excluded and like they don't even belong, even when we don't consciously intend that. 
But Paul appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. And it is in his name and with his power and his authority that, they, that we are united. You see, in the church, at core, we are united in and around Jesus, who he is and what he's done. So we must say the same things uh, and be of one mind about him. That is the thing that we have to be the same on. But what that does is if we are one of the one mind about him and, and the things he's done, then that actually leaves us free and greatly empowers us to appreciate and enjoy great diversity and different perspectives and experiences, including perhaps robust discussion about some things around just about everything else. Whether it's politics, music, sports, whatever, other stuff in the church of, of, of lesser significance and importance. Listen, can, can I just say, and, and I'm aware I might sound like a broken record to some of you, but for some others it might be the first time you've heard it. This is why gospel families are so important to us and to our church life at the Gate Church. The old saying is true, you don't get to choose your family. Well, that's true in the church as well as it is in your natural family. You don't get to choose who's here. And in gospel families, we learn to live alongside, we learn to get to know and to love and to care for and appreciate and enjoy people who we otherwise would never come across or possibly even choose to interact with. That is a beautiful expression of unity, but not uniformity of the church. And it's a wonderful gift to be enjoyed. Listen, it's a good and necessary thing to cultivate and invest in deep friendships with people who share the same tastes and interests and experiences as you do. There is nothing wrong with that. That's a very good and necessary thing. But if, if that becomes all we do, and our life is just filled up with just putting people in my life who are just like me and just easy for me to spend time with and just the closest friends all the time, and that's always the way I go, then I'm missing out big time. I'm missing out big time on the riches of the gift of the church of Christ in all of its beautiful diversity. And I'm also creating division. I'm not meaning to. I'm not being malicious, but I am. I'm creating division and factions. And I might not even realize it. So can I please encourage you, brothers and sisters at the Gate Church, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another, and that you be of one mind, and there's no divisions among you, but you're perfectly united in mind and thought. Guys, we have some growth to go in this. Let me encourage us to grow in it. It's quite a high calling. How can the church at Corinth, how can we achieve this? Well, listen, we can't. But Paul gives us the basis as he develops this point that we've just seen, that, that we have been made one in Christ. And, and as he does this, he kind of unfolds it, and there's three aspects of how we've been restored as one people. And there are effectively three resources that can help us and, uh, to go forward in this, that we have in Christ for enjoying perfect unity together in the church. And, and it's unpacked there in, in verse 13 with these three kind of punchy rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Answer, no, no, no. Firstly, he taps into this first resource, the oneness of Christ. Christ is not divided. You can't split him into different parts. Christ is one and we are his body. 
So we ought not create division where there is oneness and he has established unity. Don't rip the body of Christ apart. And it is Jesus' own prayer. The night before he goes to the cross, he prays for those who believe in him through the message of the apostles that we would be one just as he is one with his father God's. It's as if Jesus looked down the the channel of history and he saw all the disunity that would come in his body and he prayed into it to his father for peace and unity. I think it's worth a a few words on on how we might think about approaching the issue of, of the thousands of different church groups and denominations that we see kind of, without thinking within the church, but more broadly, a church around the country and the world. I think we see it in different ways. The first thing we should see it as is, is as a bad and a sad thing. Too often Christians are split for bad reasons and in bad circumstances, and it's created disunity and division in the body of Christ. But secondly, I think we also need to see it as a necessary thing to recover or protect unity in the body of Christ. Christ is one, and you either have all of him or none of him. And where it has become clear that some have departed from believing in the Christ of the apostles' witness, it is necessary for the church to recognize that. This is about Christ's oneness. So it is unity around him, not other projects, not other missions, not other interests, not other important things, however good they are, causes or aims. And it is certainly not unity for unity's sake at the cost of losing the truth of the apostles gospel found in scripture it's a bad thing it's a necessary thing i also think there's a strong case to say that it is an absolutely beautiful thing i don't think we hear this enough we can think of the variety of denominations the variety of cultural expressions found within the body of the christ not so much as a source of shame but a source of pride and pleasure Most other religions are culturally uniform and they impose very narrow and restrictive norms around dress and language and food and lifestyle. But listen, it's the manifold wisdom of God for the church to be one and yet incredibly diverse and multifaceted in its culture to have different emphases and expressions and styles and and all of this. And the church can be that because it's centered on and it's encompassed by its unity and oneness in Christ. Our essence is already one, so it doesn't need to create unity by these other things. So therefore, our posture, I think, should be one of generous and warm-spirited conviction when we think about other Christians and and other churches and, and our own beliefs and values. Know who we are and why with some conviction, but deeply loving and appreciating and valuing others who have slightly different convictions or fall in slightly different places on matters that are not integral to the gospel. Now, we, we try to do that. That's the balance that we strike in this church is uh, the way we do that um, of kind of conviction and a generous spirit is through these two documents, our core beliefs and our doctrinal distinctives. They're on our website if you want to look at them. And if you've got questions about them, then, then feel free to, to come and ask one of us. But that's oneness in Christ. We are one in Christ. That's a resource for enjoying and experiencing our unity. Secondly, was Paul crucified for you? It is the crucifixion of Christ that is our second resource. Listen, nobody else died on a cross for you. So you don't need to make such a big deal over any other person or Christian leader. It is Christ, and it is Christ alone who has saved you, and you belong to him. But more than that, 
It is his death on the cross that Christ not only restored my relationship to God, the God who made me and loves me, but he also dealt with our beef between one another. And he made us one and he restored us to each other. And he made peace between us as well. Paul writes about this at length in Galatians, in Ephesians, in, and Colossians. Christ has made us one. He's destroyed the barriers and the dividing walls of hostility between us. He's created one new humanity in himself. And so our differences are not eradicated, but they are no longer defining things about us. You know, when a, when a piece of fabric is ripped into different parts, it is, in fact, impossible to truly restore it to one piece again. We can stitch it together, but it's not really one. To, to, to truly make it one again would, would take a miracle, wouldn't it? Well, so it is in the church. It took the greatest miracle of all history. God himself dying on a Roman cross to fully restore us as one to him and to one another. You see, this is a reality, this oneness, this unity. It's a reality that's created by Christ himself and given to us as a gift to be cherished and enjoyed. We don't have to create it. We don't have to make it happen. We just have to not force it up. So don't create division and strife of Christ's hard-won unity and peace between us. Don't tear apart the body of Christ for whom he has already torn apart his physical body on the cross to make us one. This is an absolute game changer for how we navigate conflict resolution with other Christians and in the church. Those who we have been made one with, those, those who Christ died to forgive as well as dying to forgive our sins, that's the context in which we live with other Christians together and within which we work through any tensions or issues in relationship as we learn to keep the peace that we have through Christ's cross. Here's the, here's the third resource. That helps us in this uh, quest for, for, oh no, sorry, I don't need a slide. And it's, it's their baptism in Christ. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? It is not the name of Paul or any other leader. We or they were baptized into, but it's in the name of Christ. This is about who we belong to. It's whose kingdom we are in. Baptism is like the passport of the Christian that shows you where you're a citizen of, showing who your allegiance is to. So it seems in Corinth that people had started making too big a deal of who baptized them and splitting into groups over that. And, and, and it was just part of the issue. But for Paul, that just, baptism isn't, it, it, it's just not of much significance. He made a, part, a point of not really baptizing people as part of his ministry. He only baptized a few. And here when he tries to remember, he can't even remember who they are. He's just kind of like, oh, I don't really know. Didn't really do it often. Maybe a few. It's just not a big deal. And he's probably wary of this exact thing creating this cult of personality around himself and, and binding people's allegiance to him rather than to Christ. But listen, our baptism, it's not significant about the person who administered it at the time. There's not, nothing's important around that, really. It is because of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us that our baptism is significant. And so it's in his name alone that, that we, we, we profess and we rely on in our baptism. And it's our allegiance to him together that binds us together. These are three resources that, that help us in, in, in our oneness in Christ and help us to live and enjoy, live that out and enjoy that. And so that's why in verse 17, as we just close out this, 
this text today. Paul is so concerned with how he goes about his preaching ministry, which he says is what Christ sent him to do rather than that baptize. He's so concerned how he goes about it because in his preaching, he does not want to empty the cross of its power to unite the people of God. In Paul's preaching, he does not want to empty the cross of its power to unite the people of God. It is only the cross of Christ which is powerful enough to restore us to God and to one another, uniting us as the people of God. And Paul doesn't want to undermine that or or empty of its power to unite the church by leaning into worldly wisdom or eloquence in his preaching, by making himself more central or winning people to him or or, or some kind of grouping around him uh, and making his gifting and his personality central. Inevitably, if we, if we press into those things in our preaching or our leadership, things that the world finds impressive, gifting and charisma and, and, and great wisdom and intellect and eloquence and whatever else it is, it creates division and factions within the church around personalities and charismatic leaders. And Paul says, no, that's not for me. I, I love, uh, you got a sneak peek earlier, but I love this this picture. It's a piece of art by a guy called Lucas Cranick that gives, I think, a beautiful vision of the job of the preacher. I had, I had it as a, the, the, the wallpaper on my, my computer for a while. And, and it might be hard for you to see some of the detail. I'll just explain to you what's going on. But you see how, how the preacher here, and, and this preacher is actually one of the most charismatic and influential church leaders of all history. He's a German guy called Martin Luther. But this is depicting his approach to preaching. And with one hand, he points down to the Holy Scriptures that he holds before him. And with the other hand, he points to the depiction of the crucified Christ. And so those who are, who are listening to him, that their eyes and their minds and their hearts are drawn not to him, but to the Christ who he preaches from the Scriptures, to Christ and Christ alone. He's pointing away from himself to Christ on the cross. So as he preaches, he is the one who they see. He wants them to see and to behold him, for him, uh, for Christ to be central. Just as we're going to go on to see next week, the Apostle Paul says that he resolved to know nothing in Corinth while he was with them, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So listen, don't divide what Christ has united by how you live and how you lead. In your influence with others and in your interactions with others, whether you're preaching and leading and you're leading ministries or your gospel family leading, or whether you're involved in one-to-ones or in your individual relationships or in your approach to others in your gospel family or, or even who you talk to on a Sunday, do we point to and do we lead others to Christ or to ourselves? The best thing we can do for one another is to seek to make ourselves less and Christ more in their hearts and lives. And if we're a church full of people doing that, then we will enjoy perfect unity in him. Let me pray that by his spirit, the Lord will help that be true for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you in the church have made us one in Christ. We are your body, your people, your family. We are your building, your temple, your fields. We are your bride. 
We are one. We're united. We are distinct and different and unique. We are a gift to one another. Help us, Lord, to live united, to enjoy that together, to enjoy one another and all of the distinctiveness and the difference we bring. Lord, help us not to fall out or fall apart. Help us not to make too much of people. Help all of us not to make too much of ourselves, but think of ourselves humbly. And together, would we glorify Christ? Would we not bring his name into disrepute in our community? And by your grace, would you add daily to our number those being saved, we pray, Lord. Amen.